I'm Katie, mom to two littles and four angel babies. With a PhD and over a decade spent unraveling how our society shapes mom's experiences, I am here to shred the rule books and their relentless tide of expectations. In this safe space, the complexities of motherhood find a candid, unfiltered voice. We're Undefining Motherhood, one conversation at a time. I've spent 15 years researching motherhood and the past four working directly with moms enduring tough journeys through fertility, pregnancy loss, pregnancy, and postpartum. And of the thousands of things that I've learned, there's one that echoes time and again and has for centuries. As women, we're asked invasive questions about our bodies that people rarely, if ever, ask men. In this episode, we dive deep into our own stories, those of the Undefining Motherhood community at large, and pop in some fascinating tidbits of history as we try to answer this one question. Why does our society feel so comfortable asking personal questions about women's bodies? This conversation is riveting, so settle in. Living in a female body guarantees that you are going to spend your life being asked these invasive questions that men never get asked. Yes, all the time. <laughs> oh my God. Like, when are you going to get married? When are when you going to have you, a baby? When are you going to have a baby? Oh, I bet you've gotten a lot of that one. Yes, definitely. In your life. So you got married at 21. 21. And I am 40 years old now. Yes. And I was married for 13 years and we never had a kid. So, so you didn't get when are we going to get married, but like, yes. how many times do you think you were asked when you were going to have a baby? Probably at least three or four times every holiday. So spread that out over 13 years. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm going to try to do that math. That's not my thing. No, um, So yeah. And then when you got divorced, were people asking you things like, but what about a baby? Was that part of it, or did they at least know to back off then? Yeah, I think they backed off because they thought, you know, that having a baby outside of marriage is the worst thing you could possibly ever do, right? Ah, So because I wasn't married, the question just sort of automatically, like, discontinued. Automatically disappeared. Yeah, that Southern life. Um, Yeah, because I think I—so John actually bought my ring, like— a year before he gave it to yes, me. Yes, and then he hid it from me. Uh, and th- he didn't hide it from me. I had <laughs> access to it. I would, like, show it to people. Like, this is the <laughs> ring he won't let me have. Yeah. Look how pretty it is on my finger. Um, but even then, people were asking. Like, people knew he had a ring. And even still, I was getting bombarded with, when are you going to get married? And, like, I was, like, 25. Do you think they were asking John the same questions? I, like, when are you going to give it to her? When are you gonna give it to her? I think the only people who asked John that question were my Your friends parents? who knew yeah. how frustrated I was. And they were just trying to give him the note of, like, John, give her the ring. Gee. Give her the ring. And, like, he, he was just waiting to for, like, he wanted to have a sweet proposal on this big trip that we took. He's the best. Um, I know. He's so sweet. Um, and I just wanted the ring. I didn't, I didn't care about the trip. I mean, in hindsight, it was really special and really sweet. How long were you guys married? So he finally gave you the ring. Right? Uh-huh. How long were you married before you started to try to conceive? You know, oh, gosh. So we were married for about 
four years, four or five years before so we started some time trying to conceive. We took some time. Yeah. You know, I was in a PhD program. He was um, working for his dad's business and he was really growing in his role there and it was becoming very important. So we both had big things on our plates. Um, I had developed a love for travel. I never traveled as a kid. And then in grad school, um, I got to study abroad and it became a big thing. So we wanted to build that in. So we really didn't start trying until that point. Um, And, you know, it was stunning. It was stunning that it wasn't easy. You know what I actually did that's so funny is I I tried to time it around grad school and say, John, we have to get pregnant this month. Right. So, so that you that, have a baby in the summer. So that I can have a baby <laughs> yeah. in June and have right. built-in maternity leave Jeez. because I don't get maternity. Yeah. yeah. So so did people ask you when are you going to have one in those first four years before you started trying? Oh, my God. All the time? All the time. Every wedding we attended, every party we went to, every family event, all the time. And because I wasn't interested in trying yet at that point, people also really judged that. Like, oh, but you would be such a good mom. Mom, And I was like, that doesn't mean I do want a kid. I just don't want one yet. And then when we started trying... And it was a really, it was a really long journey. We talked about that a couple episodes ago. Um, it felt like the most invasive question that anyone could possibly ask me. John had to really start playing defense on it if it was at a function where he was there. Um, because to be asked, when are you going to have a baby? Right, when you're trying. When you're trying and you're not getting pregnant or we actually had to travel to Ohio for John's funeral when I was in the week between the wait of knowing I was probably having a miscarriage and finding out for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and wait, so whose funeral? It was Sean's uncle's okay, gotcha. funeral. And when he passed away, I was about six weeks pregnant, but I was so bloated that I actually had to go to a maternity store to yeah. find clothes that fit Knowing I might be miscarrying, I already knew this from a really bad ultrasound, um, and I had to find these clothes anyway because I needed them to hide the fact that I looked pregnant from that pregnancy bloat. I looked like I was 18 weeks along, and I was, you know, six weeks along, and I didn't want people asking because I knew I might be losing this baby. And I remember three different occasions— on that trip where different people at different times, none of them knew the situation and none of them knew the others had asked, had either asked when we were going to have a baby, commented how well good I was with those with kids, kids. yeah, and one mentioned the biological clock and it might be about time for you wow. to start trying. And I was like literally checking for blood every time I wiped because I knew that my pregnancy was likely not viable, but I was pregnant at this time. Let me ask you this. Like, why do you feel like people feel comfortable asking us these questions about our bodies? Oh, my gosh. Like, why is that? So, you know, I'm a, I'm a historian in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. I'm a researcher. And I think it comes from this history of women's bodies being seen as property. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think that's all of it, but I think that's probably the first part. So let's, part, yeah. yeah, let's talk about that. Like, you have a big historical background as well. Yes. So, for a long time, and to an extent now, still, right? Like when we look at legislation that's happening around women's bodies, like we're we're making these assumptions at a very cultural level 
that women's bodies are not women the women's bodies alone, that they are in part Decisions owned. are being made about women's bodies, by not other, by women. Not by yes. women, by other people, um, when this is not something that's happening with men's bodies. Um, and there's so much historical precedent here. And the time period that I am most expert in is the 19th century, um, which means 1800s because our centuries, like, right, they, they don't match up. And at that point in time, women were considered to be chattel. Um, Can you explain that word? Oh, yeah. So chattel is like the idea that a woman is property. The way that a cow can be bought and purchased, a woman could be bought and purchased in a similar kind of way. And so this this manifested in a couple of different ways. Um, One of those ways was that – when a woman got married, if she was a woman of any kind of means, if she her had property any, transfers, right? Yes. Yeah. If she, she had any man. kind of wealth, the right. property transfers. It goes from her father to her husband. It is never actually hers. Right. There were also, you know, systems in which people were paying dowries for marriages. Um, and so they're saying, okay, this is what I will give to you, the man, for marrying. Right. So my it's a daughter. commercial transaction. A commercial yeah. transaction. And this, even that happens where women aren't coming with a lot of property. In fact, I think it happens more where they're not coming with a lot of assets behind them. Um, so it, women weren't even allowed to control their own property and, I mean, even finances for so long. We're still getting around to the point where maybe they can control their bodies. So I think that's a sure. big part of yeah. it. What do you think? We can have bank accounts now. We can have bank yeah. accounts now. <laughs> credit we can cards. Have credit cards. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, if women are seen as this kind of property, how do you think that connects to motherhood? Like, what's the the link there? Oh, it's so hard. I think you know, in terms of in terms of motherhood, it's really tricky. I think we need to talk about that a lot this season. But I think what in terms of these questions, in terms of like, okay, when are you going to get married? When are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have another baby? Um, that's a big place where it plays into motherhood. You know, I think a big part of the struggle that we're really dealing with is that these – the expectation is that because you were born with a uterus, you are meant to be a mother. And that uterus is common property. And that uterus is common property. And this is your job. This is your calling. And that could be of like religious or that could be social, but like this is what you're supposed to do. And I think that's really what we're getting at. Here. Do you think that's why people always touch pregnant women's bellies? Just like, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely yeah. think there's a connection. I mean, right? I even like, feel the urge too, you know. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I feel the urge. I, I, I pull it right, in, but yeah. like, I feel it. Yeah. Even one of my best friends, I'm like, can I, yeah. can I touch your belly? You got to get consent, but yes. like, you still want to do it. Consent. Yeah, for sure. um, but yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Women are expected to become mothers. And There are so many reasons for that um, that we can talk about. We can go into detail if we want to. um, Sure. But but as property, right, like that chattel or shadow attitude, right, Uh is that the if you own something and it produces something else, it becomes more relevant. Yes. Right? It's commercially acceptable. It makes you money, right? Yes. And – Days of yore, right, when kings had a baby, when the wife has a baby, right, like that's the moment at which everybody's excited because there's a new heir. There's a new heir, especially they're excited about the male, the male baby. 
um, they're not excited about the female baby um, because while we do have histories of very important queens who have had extremely long reigns, typically the way the systems have been set up have made it where like a lot of things had to go wrong mm-hmm. with all of those male heirs yeah. in order for those. So women it goes back to, to family and lineage yes. and um, the idea that you will procreate and yeah. reestablish the heirs. All of it. Yeah. All of it. That's so your job, Katie. That's your job to procreate. And and you know, I think. When we're getting these invasive questions, we do need to consider who we're getting them from because mm-hmm. I think there's a really big narrative going on right now where we talk about, like, stop asking women mm-hmm. when they're going to get pregnant. Stop asking women when they're going to have a baby. And a lot of this comes from the fertility community, the pregnancy loss community. I know I have posted this on Instagram many times, but I think we also do need to have in mind where the people asking these questions are coming from. Um, it doesn't make the questions okay. Like, we need to find ways to make that better in our cultural narrative. But they're not asking these questions to hurt us. Sure. They're not asking these questions out of malice. It's that particularly imagining our moms, our grandmothers, you know, the boomer generation. They love to ask questions. They love to ask questions. But also, Did like, you lose weight? Did you get a haircut? <laughs> did you lose weight yes. or, or my, did fav- you gain weight? my favorite is the, yeah. the the pick at the belly no, is like no. oh you're getting a little fluffy around there don't do that yeah. um yeah yeah but also you know think about how they were raised they were raised by you know well women's rights have just come a long way they've come right? a long In way years. but like john's grandmother had to go off to work while her husband was fighting in World War II. And then when he came home, like, quite literally, they had a population that they needed to rebuild because we lost a lot of human sure. life. And so— Don't you just want to say that to them sometimes, though? Like, we're not over here trying to repopulate after World War II. We're not over <laughs> here trying to repopulate after World War II. And, like, we we sure hope that we live in a world where we're not going to be trying to repopulate. We're not having population problems right now. We are seeing birth rates slow. Sure. And I wonder if that contributes. But I think it's just that people, even if the people who were repopulating after World War II are no longer living— their children are, and they're our mothers and our grandmothers. And they were raised under this assumption that your job is to So you're a saying mother. we should be nice to them? I'm saying we should give them grace. Okay, fine. Um, I'm saying that we should have these conversations and we should we should send podcast episodes like this to our grandmothers and our moms and say, hey, I think this is a really important conversation. But what we should also be doing is recognizing that when they ask, maybe our job isn't to school them at the dinner table because they're coming from such a different lived experience than we are, um, that maybe our job is to help explain why we'd prefer that they not ask that, but also give them a lot of empathy for the fact that their lived experience and worldview make it more reasonable to ask these questions. That's a really lovely way to put it. This episode is sponsored exclusively by Genate by Snip Therapeutics, providing genetics-powered nutrition tailored for every stage of the fertility, pregnancy, and postpartum journeys. Now, friend, I tend to get excited about things, but I am not even kidding you when I say that I cried real, literal tears when I saw the ingredient list in Genate's new prenatal vitamin. 
Their essential prenatal multivitamin is the culmination of groundbreaking research and a deep understanding of what moms and growing babies truly need. And here's what that means. Genetic research shows that many women don't get the nutrition they need, even if they eat a balanced diet and take a prenatal supplement. And this is because of genetic misspellings that impair their body's ability to metabolize certain nutrients. Genate has taken this into account in their formulations by designing a supplement with the most bioavailable nutrients in the correct amounts for your baby's development and health. And when paired with the Genate test, you can learn about your personalized genetics to know if there are extra supplements or foods you should be adding to your daily regimen. I am obsessed with the deal they're offering if you get the bundle including the Genate test and their essential prenatal vitamin subscription. Check them out at undefiningmotherhood.com forward slash genate and use code undefiningmotherhood10 for 10% off. We didn't spend hours dissecting each of these questions, right? When are you going to have a baby? When are you going to get married? So on, so on. We could go on forever. But for the sake of this episode, I think we should focus in. So let's talk about this question. When are you going to have a baby? <laughs> Let's dig in here. All right. I'm ready. Um, I think in order to do that, we have to kind of take it from two different angles, right? Okay. Um, first is that being a woman um, means that you are a mother, right? Yes. Like that this connection between be the two. Right. Yes. Yeah. And then the second is that if you're not a mother uh, or if you choose not to be a mother or if you're struggling to be a mother, uh, that you are in some way defective, right? So. <sighs> Where do you want to start with those oh, two things? Okay. Well, I think we have to start with how this question implies that your goal is to be a mother, right? Sure. And where that comes from. Um, I think if we can understand that, we can we can really feel why we might feel defective for these reasons. So let's start there. It makes me think of this insane thing that happened in the Victorian period. So bear with my quick piece of history because this is I'm ready. I love history. Fascinating. Okay. So you know how, if you remember from history class, England was like a major, major colonizer during the 1800s. Still is. Still is. But like, yeah, okay. like big time. <laughs> like there were a few countries who were kind of predominant sure. in that and they yeah. were Queen Victoria of, of all the wonderful things I can say about her, I can equally say some pretty terrible, and this is one. This was a big time for suffragette movements in England, and so there was just, there was a lot going on. And so basically, you know, England was creating these penal colonies, right, where they're shipping people off to other countries, pretending that they're, like, creating countries in them. Um, but really what they're doing is they're just sending prisoners to, like, Australia and Canada and saying that, like, we don't want to pay for you anymore, so we're going to put you on a boat, and then you're going to go populate these places that already have people living there, but we're going to pretend that we're starting that population. Colonizing. Um, Got it. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's what they're doing. Not If that's not crazy enough, because we all know that part of history, here's the part people don't know that's really insane. So in the 1850s, it was actually proposed that they start shipping unmarried women 
of a certain age. What, like 27? Two. <laughs> um, so people they called spinsters or they called old maids. So what this what this was, they called it the surplus woman problem. Oh, wow, so that's a rich. census, right? A census in the early 1850s showed that there were more women than there were men. And that there were more radicals than there had been in the previous consensus, like radicals versus conservative thinkers. Like more radical women? Right. Like just more radical okay. thinkers. And so the idea was these old maids, these spinsters who didn't marry, they must be radical women. Right? <laughs> and also, they're not procreating. They're not doing what women are supposed to do. And so the proposal— was to ship them off to these colonies with these prisoners and just get – so we wouldn't have surplus women. That'll solve and, it. Yeah. Oh, that'll solve it, right? And they called them the old maids, and they were trying to get rid of them. So, like, it, I don't think it ever actually happened. Um, one of the major, major, like, feminist leaders of the time um, was a woman called Frances Power Cobb, and she has this really great article in one of their most popular magazines um, where called What Shall We Do With Our Old Maids? And it's like this satirical. It's, it's really lovely. But this is the epitome of what we're talking about, right? Of saying, if a woman does not become a mother by the expected time in her life, and maybe that expected time changes— she becomes irrelevant. We ship her off. But I think this speaks to what we're dealing with even now, right? So moms, women are being asked, when are you going to have a baby? Because the expectation is your your role. Your value. Your value yeah. is equated to becoming a mother. That's and why little girls play with baby dolls, right? Like, it's literally my mom bought my daughter a baby doll for her very first Christmas when she was just turning one year old. Nothing wrong with that, Kathy. I bought my son a baby doll when he was either three or four. Even better. And my mom fussed at me for it. Mm. Like, this is the narrative we're implanting from early, early ages. And uh, Cabbage Patches were my favorite. They were my favorite. I loved Cabbage Patch Kids. I went and adopted one. Did you go <gasps> yes, to Babyland Baby General? Yeah. <laughs> yes, because that that's near weird. where we live. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we got to go, like, actually adopt the dolls. And Have you been as an adult, side note? It is really creepy. Is it? Yes. Oh, my God. No. Yeah, like Mother Cabbage gives birth. Oh, like, it's terrifying. Oh, yeah. wow. Never, oh, never we, we need to explore this yeah. sometime. Okay. Like, we okay. need to go here and video <laughs> and explore this because this sure. is going to be a thing. Um, and, I like, I wanted the dolls. So this, yeah, this isn't too. to say, like, oh, people were forcing this on me. But there are girls who don't want the dolls. And yet we still try to force it. There are women who don't want to become mothers. And there are women who don't know if they want to become mothers. And I can, I mean, I can think of quite a few of them specifically. Um, my friend Shannon has talked at length about the frustration she feels with the expectation that she should want children and she does not want children. And she has talked about, and actually quite a few of my friends who I can think of who don't want children have talked about what people say to them is, oh, just wait, you will. Oh, yeah. You'll experience the best love of your life if you have a kid. Yeah, like, you'll want it yeah. one day. 
And that clock will start ticking. Yes. I've heard all of these. I mean, what I would hear, I have always known I wanted children. So this has not been my experience. Um, But what I would hear in these situations is you just don't know yourself yet. You're not mature enough. You don't understand. Like you cannot possibly want the thing that you know that you want. Um, Have you experienced that? Yeah, I was going to say, like, it feels like it sort of devalues the current moment. Yes. Like, grad school, people would ask me all the time because I was in my late 20s, like, when are you going to have a baby? But I was like, but I'm doing this other thing, right? Like, I'm getting a PhD. It's very exciting for me. Um, I moved to Canada. I did all of these things that I thought were really brave. And here you are like, but when are you going to have a kid? Like, (laughs) Right. They're not lauding your bravery doing really hard things. And also, you know, you've you went through a long time of a lot of ambivalence yeah, about I this. You've written about yeah. it for our website. So how does this question make you feel as someone who isn't sure if you yeah. want kids? I feel like it just means that everybody is waiting on my life to start. Yeah. When I feel like I'm already living it, like you're already, I got a PhD, I got a job, I you know I've done all these things, but you have got an still, amazing life. Yeah, there's still this expectation that something is is coming for me, right? right? Like that I haven't yet begun with all the cool things that I wanted to do, right? Yes. Oh my God, that's such a great way to put it, and and that's heartbreaking mm-hmm. because I'm not waiting. <laughs> right? You're like, not I'm, waiting. I'm doing the thing, and there are so many things that we all want to do and like there are things coming for all of us yeah and we but have people aren't looking at me the same way right, yeah because i have two children sure. um you know it makes me think of that scene in eat pray love where elizabeth gilbert is talking about being on the bathroom floor not sure if she wants to stay in, knowing she doesn't want to stay in her marriage but not knowing how to end it um and her her big breakdown that she's having is over the fact that she is actively trying to conceive with her husband and she actively does not want children and she knows that she never wants them and she's battling this like emotional chasm of what I want and what what other people want. And you know what's so interesting about this is that when I first read that book, which I've read a million times. Yes, I know. I thought to myself, and I was much younger then, and I was not ready for children yet um, at the time. But when I first read that book, by the time I finished the book, I actually thought to myself, it's a shame that she doesn't want children Hmm. because she's brilliant and we need more of that Mm -hmm. in our world. And now, 15 years later, I look back on my own thoughts on that and think, wow, how influenced are we by these social narratives that I could hear what turned into a really eloquent or lifelong articulation of why she has an incredibly fulfilling path that has nothing to do with being a mother. And even still, I was a little bummed by it. And I'm not anymore, but I think it speaks it goes back to our disclaimer, right? Like yes. maybe people think, oh, you're brilliant. You're, you have all of your life together. You're living the dream. Uh, it would be so great if you could bring a kid into the world. And maybe that's the impetus behind asking that question instead of like, when are you going to have a kid? Exactly. I think you're right. And I do think, you know, as much as I hate the comment, I hate it with a burning passion, not as much as I think you probably no, do. I, really hate, it. I yeah. hate the question or the comment 
you won't understand until you have kids. Yeah, you'll understand. Like yeah. it's it's maddening. But I do think there is a way that we put our personal biases on things because we realize, like, I went through a long period of time trying to imagine my life without children because we really weren't sure we were going to be able to have them. Um, and realizing all of the ways in which it could be amazing and the different things that we could do. But I I am so thankful to finally have what I have that I'm still tempted when I hear someone, especially someone who's young, right. say they don't want children to say, oh, but that's going to change. And I, I try not to. I, I, you know, just try to say, hey, like, you get to decide. And and you don't have to decide right now. You can decide now and you can change your mind later or you can not change your mind later. But it's just so much a part of our, our narrative. So did, had, let's get back to this idea of defectiveness because I think that's yeah, what we're hitting on here. There too. Did yeah. you— in your sort of ambivalence toward it, I want it, but I don't re- don't know if I want it, but I'd love it, but also I'd be happy without it. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you were socially, morally defective, or did people make you feel that way, or was that not a yeah. thing for you? I'd never felt defective, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think if it's not something that you understand about yourself, you yes. can't feel, like, pejoratively about it, yes. right? Like, I just didn't feel bad about it. Um, but it made me question why everybody else thought that I should feel yes. bad, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, I don't feel one way or the other about this, but everyone else has an opinion, right? It's kind of like everyone has a question. Everyone has an opinion about when you should have kids. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. Like, they get to place judgment on mm-hmm. your life because you still are somehow property yeah, in and some I, way. I didn't ask for that. Um, I'm doing just fine. Everybody. Right. right. <laughs> you know what this makes me think of, and it's a good transition to that. We also wanted to talk about what happens for people who are struggling to conceive or struggling to carry. Um, my friend Kendra is this delightful human. She is the loudest person you will ever meet in the most wonderful way. Right. Um, One of those people who you just sit down in a room with and she takes over the room without meaning to, without trying to, and leaves everyone roaring in laughter and then creates conversations between you people like she's heaven. Okay, so she went through fertility struggles. Um, She's a surgeon and she was in medical school at the time and she and her husband were trying to conceive. They now have twins. Um, But she is one of these just bold people. And she got to a point where she was so frustrated with the questions she was getting about having kids when she was actively going through fertility struggles, but was also in this medical universe where she mm-hmm. really had a better grasp than most of us do, I think, on like what's really going on in her body and how much it's not her fault, that her response to this question every single time started to become Stop asking about my uterus. It's not yours. <laughs> I want to borrow that. Oh, <laughs> my God, right? It, she yeah. has told me anyone who wants to borrow it can borrow it. I put it on Instagram years ago. We should. We should put it on a T-shirt. If you if you want this in a T-shirt, tell us yeah, in the comments because I kind of want it on a T-shirt um, or a coffee mug. Yeah. Um, T-shirt. T-shirt's better. You know, and what that really signals is the invasiveness like it's a literal organ in your it body. It is a literal yeah. organ in your body that people are 
inquiring Mm -hmm. about. And no one thinks of it that way, right? And so when you're struggling to conceive or you're struggling to carry. Do you feel like that organ is defective in some way? Okay, so that's a really interesting question because for me that organ was defective. Right, Like literally defective. So let me step back just a tiny bit. We talked about this a lot in one of our intro episodes. Um, So go back and check that out if you want to hear the full story here. But basically, we tried to conceive for a year and a half before we conceived successfully. And I felt so much shame over my inability to get pregnant that no one other than John and me knew we were trying to conceive. No one. I'm close with my family. I always have been. They didn't know. My very best friends did not know. No one knew. And like you knew me during that Mm -hmm. time. I am not one who keeps secrets about my own life. I'm a (laughs) freaking open book, right? Like I will keep things private for John's sake sometimes because he is <laughs> not the same way. Yeah. Um, he believes in privacy, mm-hmm. and I try to honor that where I can. Um, it's good to be. But for me, this was me. This was me feeling so defective and broken for not being able to Yeah, conceive. that says a lot. For sure. It says a lot. Um, and then when I started going through a recurrent miscarriage, basically what happened was I— felt so broken and so I was getting incredibly depressed. I have a history of anxiety, but I don't really have a history of depression. And I was getting just very, very into an extremely bad emotional state. And what I realized was I'm not being authentic to myself in keeping this quiet. And so I started talking very openly about my losses and what we were going through and the family we were trying to grow um, to the point that I recall going to a wedding with John for one of his work colleagues. So this might not have even been appropriate. I don't know. But one of the women at that wedding, who I knew pretty well at least, um, asked me, oh, you know, are you guys trying when you're going to try to have a baby? And I was like, actually, I just had a miscarriage two weeks ago. And I started just being really, really, really— I bet she regretted that. Um, I, I bet she did. Um, and, then, and part of me is glad, and another part of me is like, no, I never want to make someone feel guilty because, again, they were raised in this culture See. where it's okay to ask. And so it's so tricky. Um, Renee Brown says clear is kind. Clear is kind. Clear, and, and that's what it is. I didn't blame her for it. I didn't—I wasn't angry with her for asking. I just wanted to be honest. That saved my mental health during recurrent miscarriage. Um, But what it also allowed me to start trying to do was recognize that this was not a personal defect. Um, Now, funnily enough, what we did actually discover, we now know multiple things that we believe caused my recurrent miscarriages. Um, One of them is connected to an immunodeficiency that I have that we didn't get diagnosed until after Jack was born. But I just kind of happened to be on the medication that would treat it. And also, at the time, we didn't know that medication would treat it. So even if I'd had the diagnosis, it wouldn't have gotten – like, it's 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 crazy how it worked out, really. So we think that might have been part of it. <clears throat> we also discovered um, that I had something called chronic endometritis, which is an infection in your uterus. Um, and I had to do, like, mega antibiotics to get rid of that for, like, I think it was, like, six weeks worth of antibiotics. And then I still had another loss after we treated that – 
And what we ultimately discovered was that 70% of my uterine lining was avascular, which means it wasn't receiving blood flow. So these embryos were implanting and they weren't able to grow. So the truth of the matter is that actually my uterus had a defect and that was causing my losses. So like, can you get real English major on me? Okay. What's the difference between your uterus having a defect and you being defective? And that is the thing. I asked my doctor because we love to blame women in these situations. Well, if you would just relax and it'll happen. I love that one. Right? Like, have you met me? I don't um, relax. Um, yeah, well, well, and also like the, we have all of the data on it and I'm sorry, but your, your stress work. did not right. cause your pregnancy loss. Yeah. So it's I, what you can control. It's right? what you can control. Yeah. And so that's the thing. We like to blame women. Um, and I, so I asked my doctor, how did this happen? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me almost like I was crazy for even asking, like in a in an empathetic way. Um, this doctor was not one who ever made me feel less than or bad. He was he was lovely, and I credit him for my two children's lives, him and his wife, actually, um, because she was my gynecologist and he was my fertility specialist. And he was like, "You were born this way. You were born this way. My uterus has always been this way." And something about that really helped me to separate these two things. Yes, my body was causing these losses, but no, I did nothing wrong. And that is the case for women who are going through infertility and who are going through miscarriages, recurrent pregnancy loss, whatever the case may be. They did nothing wrong. I remember Mm. when I had my first miscarriage, my doctor made me put my phone down because I was typing every single word she said because I wanted to, like, go back to it later. Um, She made me put my phone down, and she made me look her in the eye, and she said, this is not your fault. Mm. Nothing you did could have caused this. Shy of jumping out of an airplane, and I'm going to be honest— that really probably wouldn't have done it either. Don't do that, though. Don't do it. But, like, that's how much it was important to her for me to understand. And wow, I, that's a good doctor. She's an amazing doctor. Uh, you're going to hear or We're going to talk more about her okay. throughout this yeah. season. She's incredible. And that is kind of a permission slip I needed that allowed me at this time to understand my uterus has a defect is not the same as me being a defective person. And if we want to equate it to something simpler, someone who has arthritis, they have limitations that cause Mm -hmm. them pain in their body, but it doesn't change who they are as a person. Someone who gets— Doesn't mean they're bad in any way because they can't unscrew a jar. Exactly. But here's the thing. Historically, women going through fertility struggles were, quote, unquote, bad. Mm -hmm. They were blamed Mm -hmm. for these things. And so that leads us to think, hey, maybe maybe we are defective, I think, in this way more than others. Um, It makes me think of a story 
my last history lesson of the day. <laughs> right. um, Give it there, to me. there was this doctor, and if you're squeamish, like you might want to just push forward by one, 60 seconds here. Um, there was this doctor. He was the prominent, preeminent doctor in London, um, in England. He was the president of, like, all of obstetrics in England. I believe this was, like, 1860s, 1870s, so 19th century, 1800s. Um, and he applied leeches to a woman's cervix while she Great. was pregnant. And the next day, she had a miscarriage. And he wrote— It was his fault. —publicly <laughs> in the newspaper— the case of her story and said, and the next day she miscarried because she went out dancing when I had told her to keep quiet. Wow. So we have this history of saying to women, Gee. it's your fault. You are the problem. You are defective, specifically when it comes to their reproductive bodies. And I think that's one of the reasons that this when are you going to have a baby question hits so hard for moms struggling to conceive or for moms struggling to carry because our culture has told them this is what your body should be able to do and this is what you should want and now you are failing. And you are less than. Right. And one of your main mission statements for Undefining Motherhood, right, is to give people this permission slip, right? To give them— to It is un- not your fault. To undefine sure. motherhood. So in a nutshell, undefining motherhood came initially, and now it's multi-pronged, from the idea that I had carried four pregnancies and I was still having to do what other people wanted to do on Mother's Day without being considered— mm-hmm. And my heart was breaking. I was still having to work around what the other kids in the family needed for holidays because I didn't have kids, so my life was easier. And it broke Mm -hmm. me that no one said, hey, you're a mother. You're a mother, too. Um, I had one friend who validated that for me, and that was game-changing. Really amazing. So what she actually did is she— she was my office mate at the time, and we were both trying to conceive. Um, and so she had kind of been through this pregnancy loss journey with me, and she got pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was in her first trimester, and she was experiencing some scary symptoms. And she said, Katie, I hope it's appropriate to ask you this, but you know the first trimester better than anyone I know because you've been through it four times is what I'm experiencing normal. And while most people think, oh, my God, how could she have asked that? For me, this was the first time that anyone said, you're a mother. You've done it. You've done it. You get it. And I was able to be involved in her pregnancy in a way I never was with anyone else's because I felt so seen and validated. And so this is something you can take with you. What, What can we do? How can we do better? You can validate the experiences of what people are going through. You can acknowledge their struggles. You can meet them where they are. And you can recognize that you you are a mother. You have em- embryo babies or you're trying to conceive or you've carried pregnancies or whatever their yeah, situation is. Or you're is. an aunt or you're, you're you love in, your pets. Or, or you're your doing friends. all these things. Yeah. You're a foster mom. You're, right. There are so many ways. You can just validate that. Mm-hmm. Motherhood is a role. Motherhood is a role and motherhood is it's, – it's a verb. You don't have to have a baby in your arms that you conceived and birthed to be one. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Undefining Motherhood podcast. It's been an honor to share this time with you. Remember, you're not just a listener. You're an essential part of our community. 
If today's conversation resonated with you, I have three simple requests for how you can help us grow. First, subscribe wherever you listened so you don't miss an episode. Second, we'd love it if you could leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast as that's one of the most important ways we can grow and share our message and community. And finally, we'd love to hear from you. Jump over to Instagram and find us at Undefining Motherhood, where you'll see a post about this week's episode where we can continue the conversation. Thank you for being a part of the Undefining Motherhood community where together we're making change. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.